Hello friends, and welcome to this episode of So Poetry Reviews, which also just so happens to be the last episode of So Poetry for 2019 and for the decade, um, which is something that I was thinking about yesterday at work and then today kind of off and on uh, throughout the day, uh, wondering if, because this is the last episode of a year and a decade, and I'm recording it and will hopefully post it on the last day of a year and a decade, um, wondering if it should feel more momentous or special or, or you know, more important than just a, a regular episode. And uh, so far, it hasn't. And I kind of didn't think that it was going to um, because it doesn't, you know, there's, it, there's no inherent meaning for me that I'm recording the episode on, you know, December 31st, other than this is kind of the only day that I could do it to still get in an episode for December uh, to try to stick to my uh, two-a-month plan. Um, but that kind of got me thinking about uh, intentions and intentionality and meaning-making uh, and especially because I spent this past Christmas by myself, largely by myself, which was a uh, sort of a mixture of circumstances and by choice, um, that the day, Christmas Day itself, didn't really feel any different than just a day off that I had in the middle of a week. Um, Christmas Eve and the day after Christmas were more, I guess, impactful or more meaningful to me because Christmas Eve, I spent it with some friends and my partner while she was at work. Uh, and then the day after Christmas, I spent pretty much the entire day with my partner and then I went out to eat with her family uh, for dinner that night. Um, but it's it feels obvious now, looking back on it, that of course Christmas Day didn't there was no, it didn't feel any different because I didn't, I didn't do anything or there was no intention of mine to make it feel different. Um, and that got me thinking, you know, I mean, thinking now about the sort of, uh, if things have inherent meaning or if we give them meaning, like holidays, they're just days. Um, the reason that they feel special or they feel meaningful is because like people make them feel special and feel meaningful. And if you don't, do that then they're just kind of just days um but that sort of just in general got me like i said thinking about intentions and intentionality um and i wanted to take a little bit of time uh before getting to the review to, to sort of revisit uh, an intention that i set out for the podcast for season four uh i don't know how many of you remember i mean you can go back and listen to it if you want but um when I started season four, I set the intention to uh, have only women slash female-bodied um, and trans guests uh, because uh, it was in largely in response to the Brett Kavanaugh Senate confirmation hearings, which were uh, a shit show and a really, I think, deplorable showing of uh, not listening to women. Uh, and not not trusting their experiences. Um, and also, I want to say it was in, like, maybe during the confirmation uh, hearings or shortly after that or maybe before they started, uh, Trump set out some really heinous policy against uh, trans citizens. Um, 
I want to say that it had something to do with with trans members um, serving uh, openly and and out in the military, which I have some feelings about the military in and of itself. But I mean, it was blatantly not in support of of trans citizens and their rights. So I was like, "Fuck you," as in as my own to fuck you to Trump, um, and as my own sort of I guess mini protest. Uh, wanted to give a uh, wanted to give a platform and a voice to well not give a voice to but would give space and give a platform for uh, the voices of women and female-bodied folks and and trans folks um, I have stuck pretty well to the uh, women and female-bodied uh, aspect of that I have really failed pretty miserably on the uh, trans aspect of that. Um, I, it, I have, I have no excuse. I have no, no, um, I got, I got nothing. I just, it, I, I didn't live up to it and I'm, I'm sorry. Um, and I'm, especially, I guess in the, in the, uh, in the light of the fact that it's a new year, um, and thinking about sort of how I want what I want to step into 2020 with um, is one of those intentions that I'm setting for myself is to is to do better and to to stick to the things that I say that I'm going to do um, specifically with regards to the, the podcast of, of being more inclusive and more diverse um, and be being more uh, acknowledging of the the sort of space and the privilege and the platform and the voice that I have um, and how I can use it to elevate um, people and voices that like need the need to be elevated um, or honestly just to, to kind of get to for me to get out of the way of other people so that they can speak um, because I Again, thinking about intentions and, and that stuff, um, I guess that's maybe the theme of, of this intro. <coughs> um, that, like, I, I understand the... I understand to a degree the, um, the privileges that I'm afforded uh, for being a white, male-bodied, male-presenting person. Um, they are in large part the the same privileges that are afforded to white male people. Um, so I there's a there's a lot of I think uh, birth that I that I'm given um, that I uh, I want to because I am in that space and I guess because I have my my foot sort of implicitly in the door. Uh, I really want to do what I can to uh, keep the door open for people that are excluded from that space or are um, systematically or habitually uh, denied access to that space and to those um, I don't know to the to the to the audience or to the outlets or to the um, just the general exposure that comes from being a a, a white dude. Um, so that, um, yeah, I, 
I wanted to say, I want to, I guess, to, to reiterate that I, um, I am sorry that I have not uh, gotten any, any trans folks on, uh, on the podcast. There are a few that I'm, I would like to reach out to, but I'm, I also recognize that the, the vast majority of my guests have been white and I'm, I'm trying to sort of, um, I'm trying to, 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 I, for like, no, I mean, not like a better term, but for all intents and purposes, I'm, I'm trying to be as diverse as I can. Um, which, you know, also acknowledging that, um, the vast majority of, of poets that I know that I have exposure to are not poets of color, uh, which is also a thing that, that I need to change. Um, because, you know, like I, it's, it's a, uh, it's a deficit to myself that that my my circles don't include uh, poets and voices of color, um, be they male, be they female, be they trans, be they like non-identifying um, or pan, you know, whatever. Um, so I in there are I don't know how many more episodes for um, season four that that. I'm I'm gonna have I'm I've been usually trying to hit around like twelve or thirteen or so, um, so I have maybe like four maybe five left maybe four probably four, um, so I'm going to do what I can to to get to have the ending of those be either uh, women of color or trans poets or trans people of color you know whatever. Uh, is to not to make up for and not to for that to be like that sort of token uh, you know like diversity voices but because that's a direction that I really would like to go in with the podcast is to to per, to to offer this platform to people that deserve to be here um, probably more so than I than I do um, I mean, for all intents and purposes, I'm, I'm just a per, I'm, I'm not even, I mean, not a dude, but, um, you know, a white dude passing person with, <laughs> uh, with a microphone and an unlimited, uh, plan subscription for, uh, SoundCloud. Um, but all of that being said, I, I, I wanted to just to say that I, I'm acknowledging my, my faults and my issues and I'm, I'm working towards, um, being more aware and being more, um, committed to, um, to being a, a podcast in a space that is open to, you know, is open to all, but especially those that, that are deserving to be heard and often don't have, um, don't have access to the means to be heard, um, so, all the all of that being said, uh, and again, wondering if there's if maybe not any inherent meeting in this being the last episode of a year and a decade, um, but interesting that it is that I'm ending on this particular book uh, and anime series uh, because I would like to talk about uh, or I'd like to review uh, Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities, which. For the um, for the life of me, I thought that I had already done 
Um, I think I've just mentioned it on the podcast a bunch. Um, I was doing, trying to, I mean, I was doing some last minute re- uh, research into this, uh, despite that I re- researched this a, a, maybe a month ago. Um, I apparently talked about it during the um, After the Quake episode, which I don't remember. I don't remember, excuse me. Um, but I, I thought for sure that I, I talked in length about Invisible Cities before, which I apparently had not. Although I am, I know for sure that I've, I've talked somewhat at length about um, Kino's Journey, which is the, the anime that I wanted to talk about. Um, but I have not brought them, I've not talked about them together in this particular manner uh, to have them be in sort of conversation with each other. Um, but um, I just reread Invisible Cities and I just rewatched Kino's Journey and the sort of beginning ideas or beginning threads of connection that I saw between them uh, was reinforced dramatically the last time through. Uh, I feel like especially because I, I read the book and then watched the series almost back to back or maybe read the book and then watched the series and then finished the book. Um, I don't remember. This was like a month ago. A lot of stuff has happened in the past, <laughs> the past month. Um, but there is a uh, there's really interesting connection that I, I feel between the two of them. Um, but I so I invisible cities. Uh, it's a little weird for me right now because I don't have the book physically uh, in front of me like I have for past uh, review episodes. Uh, I uh, lent it to uh, my friend Jane Ludy, who was a, a guest. Uh, I think in season three. I think it was season three. Um, while she's out in Europe for a while, because um, I thought that it would be, I don't know, I feel like it would be an interesting experience reading a book about invisible cities while being in a city that you used to live in and hadn't been back to in a while and that seen the changes and whatever. Um, whenever I go back to New Orleans for a long term, um, I think I'm going to bring it with me and, and see what that, what that feels like. Um, but... Despite not having it in front of me, uh, I did find a PDF version of it online, like the complete book, which kind of uh, astounded me, uh, which I will for sure put in the episode description because if you, if any of y'all listeners out there have not read Invisible Cities, I cannot, cannot recommend it enough. Um, it might be... It is, it is very, very quickly becoming one of my favorite books of prose. Um, although I feel like an argument can be made that it is a collection of, of interconnected prose poems, uh, but I, I will get to that. Um, first off, I wanted to talk about uh, the sort of uh, physical, aesthetic qualities of the book. Um, I, f- I want to say it's pretty average. I think it's maybe like four by seven, maybe five by seven. It's, it's a pretty, like if you, if you think of average uh, book size, it's around that size. Um, it's not super big. It's not super small like a lot of uh, anthology, like paperback anthology collections are. Um, it, it feels pretty good in your hands, uh, especially because um, if memory serves, the, the cover of the version that I have, um, which is the do, do, do. Um, hmm. 
I don't know when this version was published, but it was published by uh, Harcourt, Brace, and uh, Jovanovic. Jovanovic. Um, or maybe that was the original version. But anyway, the version that I have, the cover is completely white. Um, the uh, Invisible Cities and uh, Calvino's last name are written in a very like nice script font. Um, there is a weird sort of minimalist... I guess like minimalist interpretation of a skyline. I'm looking at uh, a picture of it on Amazon right now, and I just realized that it's um, what I was imagining was sort of like a minimalist interpretation of a building is actually a minimalist interpretation of a skyline, which I did not realize <laughs> at all. Um, but it is indented a little bit. Um, so not only does the cover have a have a nice fine tooth, but the the sort of uh, skyline outline is indented, which gives it a little bit of a depth. And then there is a um, the stereotypical sort of like two line loose hump silhouette of a bird in the sky, um, which, as I talked about with um, Bed Full of Nebraska's the the idea that a, a good cover should sort of give you um, all of the, at least it, for me, all of the sort of like emotional uh, information that you will need about the, um, the collection to follow or the collection that is contained therein. Uh, and I think that this cover of, of Invisible Cities does that job. It is as impactful as the cover of Bedful of Nebraska's is to that chapbook. Um, because the collection itself is a, is a series of, I guess like, not vignettes, but sort of like word uh, paintings of these, of these different cities that Marco Polo traveled. So the, the conceit, or I guess the, um, the frame story of Invisible Cities is, uh, Marco Polo is visiting with uh, Kublai Khan, Kublai Khan, Kublai Khan, uh, and describing to the Khan all of the different cities that uh, he, Marco Polo, has visited. Um, and they run, there's a, like, they're arranged by theme. Um, so there are five stories of each sort of theme. Um, it's cities in memory, cities in desire, city in signs, um, thin cities, trading cities, um, cities in eyes, cities in names, cities of the cities and the dead, cities in the sky, continuous cities, hidden cities. Um, I think that's it. So the um, each there's one two uh nine sections and each for the middle of the, the middle of the book uh from like sections two to eight um it is like the fifth uh part of city like city some cities things and then the fourth part and then the third part and then the second and then the first and it sort of repeats like that. That's the sort of general repeating pattern. Um, 
section one is different because it has to set up a lot of um, a lot of the initial cities city themes and then nine is also different because it has to more or less like wrap up all of them um, but each section is um, framed by an italicized interaction between Kublai Khan and Marco Polo and they get as the book progresses they get more and more uh, metaphysical and dreamlike because um, at first it seems like they're just talking to each other and then it's revealed that at first Marco Polo didn't speak Mongolian uh, so he had to set a bunch of um, you know uh, I don't like objects and trinkets and stuff on out and then each one of them was used as a sort of uh, stand-in for a city or so a stand-in for an aspect of a city or how they were used in relationship to each other or is like some aspect of a city um, and then it's revealed that the conversation that you have been privy to between the two of them having might not actually be happening at all it might just be like, because they are so in tune with each other, they could just be sitting next to each other and, uh, for all intents and purposes, be communicating telepathically. Or Marco Polo imagines what Kublai Khan says in response to something that Marco Polo said, but uh, Kublai Khan is also envisioning the same, the same scenario, almost word for word. And then they play chess. And it is revealed that, like, in the playing of chess, it's similar to what Marco Polo did with his trinkets, and that each thing could be, each, uh, each uh, chess piece could be a stand-in for an aspect of the city or how they're used in relation to each other. So all the cities that, Polo, that Marco Polo uh, visits and is talking about could be contained in a chess game, a sort of never-ending continuous chess game, and that if Kublai Khan can figure out the rules of that game, then he will understand all the cities in the world, um, past, present, and future. So it gets it gets way metaphysical and super dreamlike, and um, but it never really feels it never really feel at least in those sections it doesn't really ever feel to me or it never felt to me like it was trying too hard. Um, it it just sort of I don't know like the the state that I've experienced a handful of times if I'm meditating or if I'm sort of like right before sleep where your 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 mind and your brain start making connections between stuff that you never really would have thought would have thought about I think there's a there's a term for it that I cannot pronounce it's hap uh, yeah whatever there's a term for it I'll put it in the description um but that, that state before being asleep or being awake, or I guess maybe before, um, like if you're asleep, before you wake up fully, there's the, the a weird sort of malleable state, malleable mental state. Um, and those sections to me feel like as the book goes on, they get more and more into kind of that state, um, which creates a, a weird, interesting sort of haze and fog around the collection itself because some of the cities uh, feel uh, like they could exist, like they could just be 
regular cities. And then there are other ones that, that get into the realm of sort of magical realism and, and maybe like sci-fi, depending upon if... Like in the in the context of the story, they get sci-fi because they uh, one of them mentions like planes and cars and buses, which did not exist when Marco Polo existed. Which was I know this off the top of my head, and I'm not googling, googling it right now. Um, you yeah, so th- uh, he like. 1400s no 14th century like 1200s to 1300s so this was years and years you know well before uh, air travel or you know pipes there's one city i don't remember which one it is that it's just a series of pipes that um carry what you know like metal pipes that just carry water places and uh, nymphs and dryads have taken residence taken up residence in the city um but also because the there is a repetition of sort of like each each city theme like cities and memories there there are five of them and they begin to sort of feel similar to each other and some of the cities um like the continuous cities ideas of of like you take off from a take off in a plane from one city and then land in an airport and it turns out that you're in just a different airport in the same city or it's a, it's a city that has the same name as the city that you left. Um, but the, uh, like, eventually getting kind of to the idea that all cities are um, sort of variations of one true city that you hold in your head, which may or may not correspond to an actual city that all other cities are based off of. Uh, there was a poem that I wrote uh, flying back from somewhere, um, I think it's called uh, A Sky as Big as Texas, um, which uh, drew really, really heavily from um, Invisible Cities. I want to say I I read it either on the trip or right before the trip. Um, Actually, I might read that uh, later. Um, Just bring it up. As you can see, or as you can hear, uh, I'm... Super, super prepared for this episode, uh, as I always am. Um, but yeah, I think I, I think I might read this later, because um, there's an excerpt from uh, Invisible Cities itself that uh, I would also very much like to read. That I think I will I'll cap the this episode on. Um, but so anyway, getting back to the whole the whole thing that started this um, with the cover. Because it is blank white and because it is a sort of minimalist interpretation of a skyline um, or a building itself or sort of it's it's so it's so minimalist that it could be sort of anything um, which I feel is a is a major emphasis in the idea that like what you're stepping into is interpretation um, and I, f- I feel like Marco um, Polo even says this towards the end of the collection. Um, the idea that like what um, the way that he describes the city or the that cities are only um, actually I think it's the it's the the first italics of the last section. 
Um, I was reading it right before I um, right before I started recording, I think. Oh yes, so um, so Kublai, so Kublikan is uh, showing Marco Polo a uh, atlas that he has that has all of the all the cities and empire, all the cities and empire, and all the neighboring realms are all drawn building by building. Uh, and street by street, with uh, I'm reading from this now with wall with walls, rivers, bridges, harbors, cliffs. Uh, he realizes that from Marco Polo's tales, it is pointless to expect news of those places, which for that matter he knows well. Uh, how uh, Kambula, Kambalu, sorry, uh, capital of China. Blah 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 blah. Um, so essentially, he's saying that like he he's not going to get any information from the cities and the atlases from. Marco Polo. And then he, he asks Marco, uh, when you return to the West, will you repeat to your people the same tales you tell me? I speak and speak, Marco says, but the listener retains only the words that he is, uh, he is expecting. The description of the world to which you lend a benevolent, benevolent ear is one thing. The description that will go uh, the rounds of the group of stevedores and gondoliers on the streets Sorry, on the street outside my house, the day of my return is another, and yet another, uh, that which I might dictate late in life if I were taken prisoner by Gen uh, Genoese pirates and put in irons in the same cell uh, with a writer of adventure stories. It is not the voice that commands the story, it is the ear. Which I think is a really, a really interesting uh, interpretation of stories, which maybe is maybe not an original interpretation, but the idea that um, the the author or the teller of the tales is not the person that is that is the the shaper of the story and is not the one that sort of gives it life and gives it meaning. it's it's the person who is listening to it that that does those things. Um, so by looking at the cover, it kind of is, as close as a blank slate as you can get with some uh, maybe sort of like starting point images for you to, to start uh, adhering to and spinning your own meaning on. But just the simple fact of you doing that sort of re, uh, reinforces uh, Polo's and I'm assuming Calvino's idea that uh, the reader or the audience is the one that is really in control and really in possession of the of the quote-unquote, true meaning of, of these things, that, like, you are, um, I guess, similar to haiku, that, like, you are filling in all of this space with your own experiences and your own ideas and memories and intentions and meaning. Um, so that getting into to the sense of, like, nothing in this book is going to be meaning given to you. It is going to be things that are presented that then that you must interpret the meaning of an or you must interpret and extract the meaning of yourself which is a thing or a uh, an experience and a move that calvino does that i i love maybe more so than than anything else when it comes to writing um there is a it may have been with meggie uh, a couple of episodes ago, um, I feel like I hit this hit on this with her, 
Um, and I definitely talked to a friend of mine a handful of months ago about this. This, um, and I don't, I don't mean to rag on Instagram poetry, or Instagram poets for that matter. But in my experience, the vast majority of the the poetry that I've encountered on Instagram that could be considered quote unquote Instagram poetry um, feels really, really expository to me. Um, it is the the poet telling me what he or she or they feel, um, which sort of, uh, sort of produces in me the same response as somebody telling me about, um, like telling me about their day or the things that, that, that happened to, to them in their day. Um, or telling me a story that is, that is heavily laden with, um, just like telling me about stuff. It's like I'm there's a there's a layer of separation between me and the thing that this person is telling me about because I know that it is, it's a thing that happened to them. And they're just telling me about this thing that happened to them. And instead of uh, presenting me with this, with the information in such a way that I can be, I feel like I can be part of the story or I can I can. Uh, latch onto or feel in myself the emotions or the things that they felt sort of in response to what they experienced. Um, and I feel like the, the poetry that, that hits me the hardest is when a, um, is when a poet gives me the experience with no, uh, so I guess maybe before I get to that, uh, I, I think, I think one of the things that, that bothers me about poetry that is, a, that is overly expository is that there's a tendency for the, the poet to editorial, editorialize the, the things that they are, they're presenting to the reader, or you know, me in this case. Um, that there is a sort of spin of, this is what I think about this, and this is in turn sort of what you should think about it too. And there's a um, there's a level of resistance that I feel to to work like that. It's like I don't want to be told what to think or how to feel. I would much rather just be presented with an experience, be presented with with uh, a scene, with images, with a world, and then left to figure out how I feel about it on my own. Um, and I feel like the getting back to, to this point, the poetry that, that hits me the hardest is poetry that gives me that world or gives me the experience in, in such a way that I feel like I am living it too. And, you know, like I, I'm aware that I'm, that there is a particular emotional, uh, I don't know, bullseye or emotional like landing zone that the the poet is is sort of guiding me to based on the words that they use or the cadence or the rhythm of the lines or even the images or or the aspects of the experience that they they choose to capture in the poem. But it is not anything coming out. It's not the poet coming out and saying it's like this is a thing that I this is a thing that I experienced. This is what I felt. And therefore, you should feel it too. It's they just give me the experience, and if they, uh, 
if they are careful enough and adroit enough and experienced enough to present that experience uh, in a way that it leads me to the emotions that they felt, that's fantastic. Like I'm, I'm all for that of, of having a world and being sort of drawn through it and arriving at a place that they arrived at, but not because they told me to go there, but because I, I had the experience myself of moving through this, through whatever they, they give me. It's like, I'm doing it. I'm doing the work. I'm doing the emotional, you know, like I'm, I'm experiencing what they experienced inside of myself. And it, it happens to bring me to the same place that they, that they arrived at, which, you know, might not always happen. Um, somebody can have a very, very different emotional reaction to an experience that is being presented to them um, in, in a poem. But I, I feel like, I don't know. I mean, for, for me, writing poetry like that, it's like if I get people at least in the ballpark, like I'm happy. It's like they're, they will have their own unique um, texture and color of that, of those emotions in that experience. But if they're in the same general area as, as where I wound up, I'm more than happy about that. Um, and the aspect of invisible cities is the fact that each city is presented in such a way that there is no, no editorializing at all, or at least from what I can remember, very, very little, if there is some, or at least it's couched as like talking to talking, Marco Polo talking to a, a citizen, um, or inhabitant of a city and getting their opinion and not so much, you know, like it's, it's not a, this is a hard and fast rule. It's just, this is an opinion of a person that it, that lives in this space. Um, but it's, it's, they're presented each, um, each city theme section. So like, uh, let's see, you know, I'll actually read the first one. Um, just to scroll through all the, so this is, this is, this, this is cities in memory one. Uh, so this is the, after the first italicized, uh, section that sort of sets up Kublai Khan and Marco Polo hanging out and talking. This is the first, this is the first section. Uh, Leaving there and proceeding for three days towards the east, you reach uh, Diomira, a city with 60 silver domes, bronze statues of all the gods, streets paved with lead, a crystal theater, a golden clock uh, that crows each morning on a tower. All of these beauties will already be familiar to the visitor who has seen them also in other cities. But the special quality of this city for the man who arrives there on a September evening when the days are growing shorter and the multicolored lamps are lighted all at once at the doors of the food stalls and from the terrace uh, a woman's voice cries oh is that he will fe that he feels envy towards those who now believe they have once lived oh they have once before lived an evening identical to this and who think they were happy that time that's it that's the first thing there it's it's and all the other cities are pretty much not exactly in this way, um, but are presented very similar. The language that they that's used and the sort of just the way that, the way that they are described is uh, very very similar to this. 
um, it all does the same amount of work. It's just you get you get images, you get the sort of flavor and the experience and the vibe of the city and not anything about like um, how you should feel about it. You know, like there's nothing in this section that say that you should feel this way about the city. It's just you're presented with this scene and with the, the possibility of, um, you know, like there is a quality about this that that there is you will feel in or that there is an enviousness of someone who experiences this, this and they're like oh i've had this experience before I, I don't know i mean i don't i don't know if this is maybe the best example of that or if my description of it lives up to um or my previous description lives up to what this is doing but at least for me it feels like there's there is just it's it's presentation for me that it's the difference between presentation and exposition um that it's there's nothing there's nothing in here telling me like this is how Marco Polo felt, this is why he felt it, this is why I should feel this way in response to what he's telling me. It's just it's this present it's this sort of image word image flurry that gives you a uh, a very clear emotional experience or emotional uh, flavor of the city, and it's you know it's up to you to feel that thing if you if that's where it brings you um uh let's see the next one is cities in memory two uh when a man rides a long time through the wild regions he feels the desire for a city finally he comes to isadora a city where the buildings have spiral staircases encrusted with spiral seashells where perfect telescopes and violins are made where the foreigner hesitating between two women always encounters a third where cockfights de uh, degenerate into bloody brawls among the betters. He was thinking all of these things when he desired a city. Isadora, therefore, is the city of his dreams, with one difference. The dreamed-of city contains him as a young man. He arrives at Isadora in his old age. In the square, uh, there is a wall where the old men sit and watch the young go by. He is seated there. He is seated in a, in a row with them. Desires are already memories. Like I, that's I, I don't know. I, it it paints for me a very um, not like a clear picture, but there's a clear emotion that I feel associated with this. Uh, which, thinking about it now, I never I hadn't put this together, but um, when I listen to music. Most of the time, I um, experience it along very uh, emotional terms. I don't really get images. I don't really see colors. Um, I don't, in very, very certain circumstances, I'll get maybe scenes of stuff. Uh, I've had a couple of music video ideas that have, that have happened that way. But most of the time, it is a very emotional experience for me to listen to, to music. And I, I, I connect with it uh with my emotions and with uh invisible cities each city each little like a city vignette for lack of a better term um sort of paints for me a very particular emotional image or emotional experience or um it's the 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 best way to describe or to to 
say what the emotion is, is to give the context for when you would feel that emotion. So for Isadora, it's if you are out wandering, you know, wild regions and you want a city and you think about all the things that you want in a city and then you arrive in the city and you realize like, oh, when I wanted, when I had all these desires and these dreams for the city, I was here as a, as a young person and now I'm here as an old person and I'm sitting with all these other old people and watching the young pass through. Like that is a very, very specific emotional response. And I'm not sure what that emotion is, but it's definitely something that I feel um, and I can pinpoint where in me that I feel it. And I can pinpoint all the other uh, emotional places that all the other uh, city vignettes provide. And that's, I guess, kind of what I, what I was ultimately trying to get to with the idea of, or the difference between presentation and exposition, that with the presentation, you, there are these things that are just, that are given to you. These images, these experiences, um, these spaces, this world, and there's enough room and enough space for you to kind of move around in them and figure out your relationship to them. Like you, you develop your own relationship to them. Um, and like I said, if, if the, if the author or the poet or the writer is, um, effective enough in their, their, uh, communication or their, uh, execution of, of what, of that, you will probably wind up in the in the place that they kind of want you to, to wind up in. Versus exposition to me, or exposition along these terms, or in this context, as giving me the, I guess not so much giving me the the space or the world, but giving your interpretation of that space in that world and i know that you know like these little city vignettes are, are interpreted through in the in the context of this book through marco polo but also through you know italo calvino um so these are like his uh his presentations of these things but they don't feel like they're coming to me explicitly as like this is what he thinks about them. It's just you know these are the things that he that he um, it's it's more it's more implied or more implicit that like oh these are of course these are the things that he noticed. But it's telling that you know you can infer some things or you can interpret things that these are the things that he that were noticed or that were deemed important enough to put down on onto paper versus somebody I don't know explicitly telling you that maybe maybe that's the difference or the thing that i the 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 main difference for me uh not so much presentation versus exposition but explicit versus implicit uh that i think i'm i'm more uh more in i more enjoy things that are implicit things that are that are implicative that um i mean like haiku it's kind of their whole deal is that they they give you certain concrete information, but the rest of the 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 stuff around them is is implicit implied, and you kind of have to like intuit what's going on in that space. Um, but because of that, it feels like it's I don't know, it's enticing or it's inviting, and it's like you want to spend time in that space trying to 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 
you not figure it out, but to sort of get that experience. The the only maybe that's what it is. The only way that you will be able to fully experience whatever that thing is is that you just spend more time in it. And it's you know, and because it's so um, there is so much uh, implicative space surrounding the thing that is provided that there it it feels welcoming or it, it feels. Um, it feels like it wants you to, to sort of occupy that space for a while versus um, things that are explicit or expository that feels like there's there's a very, very narrow and limited amount of space for the audience or the reader or, you know, whoever is being uh, told these things to occupy the things that they're being told um, because it is being presented along much more of like rigidly along certain lines and the this the the room it's like the the borders between the like the view and the words or the view and the experience or or it's there's not a lot of breathing room around there um or i guess maybe another image would be um like margins on a um in a book like i i love a ton of white space around um around words in books be they poems or prose i mean i feel like especially prose i'm I'm, uh really appreciative of having a lot of white space um because there's there's space to kind of like daydream and drift off and you know occupy the marginalia that you're still in the world but you're not you know like you're you're sort of taking tangents and side paths into the into the world or into the experience being presented to you um, versus not like a, if there's a very slim amount of margin or very small amount of, of white space, it feels kind of claustrophobic to me. That's like it. I I don't. There's I have to exist in the words the way that they are presented to me, and there's not a lot of flex and not a lot of wiggle room, and it that feels stifling and feels um, I don't know. Like I said, there's there's sort of reluctance in me to be. Um, explicitly handheld through through a thing it's like i don't i don't want uh and this is reiteration at this point but like i don't want to be explicitly and overtly handheld um or maybe that's maybe that's the difference it's it's in those instances instances it's not like i'm being um it's not like someone's taking by the hand and and guiding me through uh, an experience in those instances that is it feels like i'm being dragged through this space it's like i can't move at my own speed i can't take time to linger where i want to linger and think about the things that i want to think about or have you know like take a totally different interpretation of this thing it's like i'm someone has clasped me by the wrist and is dragging me through point by point the things that they think i should know and like well who who the fuck are you to tell me that this is the stuff that i need to know give me this information and then like oh maybe that's it too i know there's a lot of maybe that's it i feel like in a more uh i feel like this this episode of of the review uh in in a much more concentrated way is kind of how uh invisible cities reads or maybe this is more so like if on a winter's night of traveler it's just constant (laughs) constant interruptions and constant starts of new stories um but anyway i feel like there is a level of trust that a writer has 
with their reader uh, when they write, when a, when a uh, poet or an author or writer, whoever, writes more implicit, uh, writes more in implication or writes more things that are implied because like when you don't say everything you have the only the only thing that can fill in that space is the reader and you have to trust the reader or the audience or whoever uh to get kind of where it is that you want them to go uh but because if you're dealing with things that are implied and things that are not overt uh, there's a lot of room for subject. I mean, more I'm more room for subjectivity and more room for sort of surprise interpretations or deviations of interpretation, which I feel sort of goes back to uh, that line that I read where uh, Marco Polo says that it's not the it's not the speaker of the story that shapes it; it's the listener. It, you know, it's the reader. It's the, the reader in, that is in, in control of the interpretation and the, the experience versus something that is so rigid, rigid and so uh, explicit and so, uh, I don't know, so expository in the context or the way that I'm using it. Uh, it feels like there's no trust that, like, that the, the writer has to spell out every step of the way and has to give you everything from point A to point B, like micromanage uh, all of those, all those interactions or internal interactions because they don't trust the reader to get there themselves. Um, and I think, I think it really boils down to me that I, um, I don't want to be told what to feel. I want to feel it myself, and I don't know if that is a manifestation of the fact that I'm uh, I'm INFP, uh, and my my big deal is uh, authenticity, um, especially when it comes to like emotions uh, and feeling emotions. But yeah, like I I don't I don't want someone telling me a story to then tell me that's like oh I felt happy about this. It's like I don't care. You can tell me that, and but by you telling me that you feel happy about this thing, um, I mean that that sounds really insensitive. But in in the context of like, like, I don't know, like you you see if there's a poem about like you see uh, sunlight filtering in through uh, the glass or like through a window and hitting the floor or hitting the side of a desk or something like. I don't want the next thing after that image to be, this makes me feel happy. I honestly don't give a shit. I want to feel what you felt. So you need, or maybe not you need, but I would want you, therefore, to present this image in such a way that, like, if this makes you feel happy, what are words that you can use or what are ways that you can describe this thing that in the description itself, you get that sense of like, oh, this is a happy thing. Maybe the sun's bright. Maybe it's warm. Maybe the desk is, I don't know, a desk that you spent like your childhood at. And maybe that's the point of it. Like the poem, then it ex- expands out to like, oh, this the childhood that you had was spent reading books and spent in these worlds. And this was informative for you. And like, oh, 
in you know in retrospect i can read but it's like oh the light on this desk this is a bright happy thing maybe the light on the desk is sad maybe the desk was your dad's and your dad just recently passed away and you know it's like it conjures those memories and stuff it's like i i want those threads and i want those moments of like oh i maybe that's it's like i want i want those moments of discovery of this light on this desk you know it's it's a it's a warm light but it's the angle is weird or something like that and then it the desk's your father's and then your father passed away recently like oh this is a this is a somber moment or maybe in the in the midst of the somberness this is a happy moment you know like there there's this the, the little little like you know the sun breaking through the clouds and hitting this desk is this moment of of sweetness in the sort of shit grief storm of of his i don't know something along those lines or any any number of examples but like i don't want to be told that you know sunlight hits hits the desk it makes me feel sad because my dad died it's like okay i mean i'm i get it and i can i can sympathize with you but that doesn't do anything to make me feel sad too and like i want to feel that i want to feel what you're feeling so when you when you have moments where you can just present this information and you can you can give the images and give the moments and give the experience um, without leaning into the the need to editorialize or insert that's like oh that you know like parentheses you should feel happy here parentheses you should feel sad here like let let the reader get there themselves but in doing in order to do that it's like you have to write it in such a way that uh that lends itself to the reader having those arrival moments um but so i recognize that this is much more a uh a a treatise on uh i don't know expository versus non-expository writing um but I, the general quality and the general experience that I have with reading Invisible Cities is that it's, it's a series of, of cities that are presented in such a way that, at least for me, I get very specific, if uh, unnamed, emotional responses to them. Uh, that you know, it's, it's just these images and these moments and these experiences and these little, little segments of, of lives or things that are happening in these cities. And it's sort of up to the reader to figure out if there's meaning to that or what that meaning is. Because maybe there's not meaning. Maybe it's just the, the city is, is the way it is. And that's it. Um, which, um, at its core, feels like it's the same move that Kino's journey does. Um, and because I've, I think I talked about Kino's Journey way, 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 way back. Uh, I don't even know what season it was. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Kino's Journey uh, was originally written as a uh, light novel, uh, which I actually had to do some reading on today because I never really understood what a, a light novel was in versus like manga. Um, so manga is essentially, I mean, for lack of a better term, like a comic book. It is, it is primarily image with 
you know, characters speaking in, in text bubbles and stuff. But the, the primary method or the primary means of, of uh, story, getting the story across or I mean, story presentation is images. It's, it's graphic. Um, whereas a light novel is uh, the, the uh, primary presentation of a light novel is words. It's, it's written. Um, there are, you know, maybe some, um, some images or illustrations interspersed throughout, but, uh, the idea is it's sort of like a novel that, that is light reading. It's not a, a super intense, like Dostoevsky's notes from underground. Um, and that they're targeted at, at younger readers. So the, the, I mean, I don't know, like, I think, uh, more advanced sort of like young reader books that are that are illustrated uh, i mean much more advanced because like you know kino's journey is a light novel and it deals with some <laughs> some really uh interesting philosophical philosophical stuff um but <coughs> i believe kino's journey was also adapted into a manga i think um but it was for sure adapted into an anime series and then uh in 2003 and then it was i think it readapted rebooted retooled maybe is the, is the right word in 2017 um i have not seen the 2017 series uh i have only read some reviews of it uh so all the information that i have on it is essentially hearsay uh the series that i want to talk about is the two is the uh 2003 series which i have on dvd um i was able to find online because my dvd player was was busted uh, but the link that I had is no longer there. So um, if you want to watch it online, good luck finding it. Um, I would recommend the the sub over the dub if, if you can find it. I mean, if you can't, like the dub, I don't know. I don't... If there's nothing else, I would watch the dub. Um, I want to say you can get it on Amazon. I think you can get the the full 2003 series. There's a bunch of different versions of how it's been collected on, on DVDs. Um, but if you can get it, I would recommend it. Um, because if you're looking for a sort of um, visual, like, I think it's 13, 13 or 14 episode anime. Um, like a visual sort of representation of or visual experience of what uh, Invisible Cities is. Kino's Journey is is pretty much that. Um, the basic premise of uh, of the the series is there is a young traveler named Kino uh, who has a talking motorcycle. Just accept it. Just move on. Um, who travels around to different cities. I think in the series they call it uh, countries, but it's essentially just like various cities uh, or maybe like city states for lack of a better term um and kino and the motorcycle hermes will only stay in each city for i think three days I think it's like three days two nights <coughs> um which seems like kind of an arbitrary uh arbitrary amount of time but i mean spoilers but any information that I give you about the series as itself, it, 
like sitting through it and actually experiencing it as a series, I don't think will uh, will be dampened at all by any information that I give you. But um, the there was a traveler that Kino met when they were very very young, um, who essentially had the same sort of uh, the same mentality of like three days, two nights. And the reasoning that, that he gave was that any longer and he would want to stay, like he would think about staying in a city. Um, and because, you know, he viewed himself as a traveler, he was like, I, you know, I can't. It's like, this is the maximum amount of time that three days, I feel like I, I will have seen all the things that I need to see. I'll get, I have a good idea what the city is. And if I stay any longer, I'll, I'll want to just, you know, like not be a traveler anymore. So... Kino sort of adopts that as, as their modus operandi is that they, they travel to city to city. Um, they spend three days there and then they move on. Um, when I first talked about Kino's journey uh, in episodes past, I made it a point not to refer to Kino uh, by uh, anything under the, anything other than like they, them pronouns uh, because it's, I don't know. This is not so much of a of a reveal, but it's revealed later in the series that Kino is um, born, well, at least born female, female bodied, um, and that's the first time I watched it. I was like, "Oh, that's interesting," but I, I don't know. I don't think that it's it on on subsequent viewings. I don't. It's like an interesting moment, but it doesn't really. I don't think detract. Knowing that going in, I don't think it really detracts from it because there's another, I think it's the Coliseum episode that um, a character refers to Kino as a little boy or as a boy because I think that that's just the general assumption that is that, you know, like a little, a, a young, like teenage-ish aged girl would not be riding around by themselves uh, on a talking motorcycle or be as proficient with uh, guns as Kino is. Or be in possession as, as as many weapons as Kino has on their person, uh, but someone refers to Kino as a boy, and Kino is like, "I'm not a boy, I'm Kino." And then later in that episode, someone refers to Kino as a girl, and Kino says, "I'm not a girl, I'm Kino." Which, being a person uh, who is gender void myself, I wonder if. Kino identified, well, I mean, there's no way to know, but it's interesting to think, to do some thought experiments that Kino might identify not like as neither um, masculine or feminine and maybe, maybe a gender, gender void, maybe just um, like non-binary, depending upon if they feel like they are in possession of a gender or not. Um, but I, it, there was a, I think the first time I watched it, I was not uh, where I was in my understanding of myself as, as being a, a gender void person. But it was interesting in, in my subsequent viewing of like, oh, I wonder how they identify. But anyway, um, the, the series is uh, essentially like if there is anything that was the, the, the literary, literal definition of episodic, it would be Kino's Journey. Um, they, each episode is, is Kino and Hermes, Hermes visiting a different city that has its own, its own thing. They hang out 
dealing with, you know, potentially the thing or the fallout of that thing, and then they move on. Um, and there are some, I feel like there's a handful of episodes in which characters in the series sort of explain to Kino what's going on. Um, more often than not, it feels like it's sort of internal, like internal as an in universe to the series, uh, justifications that the characters are, are have saying it's like, Oh, well explaining this thing as a means to justify their actions or inaction, I guess in some cases. Um, so, and it doesn't really necessarily feel like it's directed outward to the audience. It feels like it's directed at Kino. Um, and you could maybe argue that Kino is supposed to be a stand-in for the audience. So in that regard, it's being directed at the audience, but it feels like it's it's very like internal. Uh, it's, it, may, it stays internal. Um, but I feel like the the episodes that hit harder, at least hit harder for me, are episodes that um, that I, again, it's like things are implied. Um, there's one episode in particular that I'm thinking about that. Um, I think that like the characters don't come out like outright and say what they're about, but they give sort of enough of a nod to it. And then because of some stuff that you see later in the episode, you're like, Oh shit. Yeah. Okay. Um, but again, it's, it's not that like, it's not that the series is sort of hand holding you or like wrist dragging you through these things. It's, it's more of, it's like, it's presenting, it's presenting these things as objectively as they, as uh, each city and each sort of circumstance of the city as objectively as they can. Um, and even made, makes a point in some of them that, you know, like some of the citizens say, it's like, you know, like these are our customs. How can you as an outsider say anything against our customs, which creates a sort of interesting, um, given Kino's sort of uh, origin, gives an interesting, uh, I guess, tension between um, at least for the, maybe this is uh, dramatic irony, uh, for the audience of that tension between like, oh, you know, like these sort of insular customs of each city versus a, a maybe a moral, a, a general, a more general or universal moral uh, direction. But again, the series sort of even resists that of like no one is, is painted as a hundred percent good. No one is painted as a hundred percent bad. It's all sort of like it's context and it's viewpoint and it's, it's meaning that like one character can have this experience and feel this thing. And another character can have this experience and feel this thing. And for the most part, uh, Kino's journey presents them as like valid viewpoints, flawed and, um, maybe not the appropriate response, but still a valid if, if that space can exist, <coughs> which again, sort of, um, because these things are presented sort of without comment, um, or viewpoints maybe are presented without comment, but the audience also sees the larger context, uh, to those comments the audience can can be in a in a place of um the audience can be in a in a position to sort of parse these things out for themselves 
um, more so than any character in the series can, uh, with the exception of maybe Kino, um, because the characters are sort of presented as, as their own little isolated units and isolated, uh, I don't know, isolated viewpoints. Um, but again, they're not, um, I know I keep saying begin, but again, um, each one is not like, Kino does not, uh, I don't think Kino ever tells someone that they're wrong. They just sort of listen. Um, they absorb the information and, but they don't, they don't pass judgment. Um, which I, I want to say, well, I don't know this for sure, but it feels like it's, that's a sort of, um, maybe a more Japanese move to make, um, or Japanese, maybe, um, cultural move to make. Cause there's another, uh, anime that I'm thinking about, uh, called, uh, Mushishi. Mushishi? Yeah. <coughs> that also is, is, um, has episodes or has a sort of vibe that is like there are these things that are happening in the world one interpretation of them could be good one interpretation could be bad sometimes it's both at the same time and it's just kind of given your context and given your experience as which side of those that you you come down on but most of the time it's like there's this healthy amount of gray area and things that just kind of are um which um I think drawing back to invisible cities and maybe, maybe that's part of, of my uh, appreciation of these things too, is that things are presented as just sort of the, this is the way that they are. It's not, it, or maybe not the way they are, but these things, uh, this is how these things are. This is how they exist. They're not a judgment call is good or bad. It's just, these things are presented as like, this is how it is. And it's up to you, you being either reader for Invisible Cities or you being either or Kino and or the audience for Kino's Journey. Um, it's sort of up to you to figure out, like, what do you think about that? Um, because the each medium is not giving you the answer. It's like, oh, I think this is right. I think this is wrong. I think these, these people are morally correct. I think these people are morally incorrect. Um, it's more a like this is these things exist as they exist what do you think about that um which is um really refreshing to to be presented with with a thing and not be sort of uh not also be presented with the the editorialization or the the sort of built-in viewpoint of like oh you know this is how it is i think it's wrong what do you think about it? It's more, you know, there's there's no leading like that at all. It's that this is how things are. It'd be like presenting you a plant. You know, this is a plant. These are the characteristics of this of this plant. Um, this is how long this plant has been alive. This is where this plant exists in the world. What do you think about it? You know, there's no there's there's nothing. And maybe maybe in the the. I, I don't know. I I feel like in both Kino's Journey and Invisible Cities, uh, the the way that they are presented to um, resists editorializing. Like in um, 
with all of Marco Polo's little story vignettes, none of them are really, there's like, you can't really get a sense of what he himself thinks about them. It's just that these are the, this is what I noticed. This is what I have to report. Uh, and same thing with Kino's journey. It's, you know, like every, all characters are with the exception of maybe one or two uh, bigger supporting characters um, or more major supporting characters. Um, they're all animated and drawn the same way. Um, all of the cities, I mean, some of are, some are rural, some are uh, more uh, technical. Well, not that rural things are technological. Some are more like hamlets that you would see out in a village somewhere, and others are like major modern cities that have like robots everywhere. Um, aside from the visual differences of like, you know, each of those worlds, it, it, every, all, of, all of them feel like they exist in the same world and exist as if, um, I don't know, like as if they are independent and also connected to each other. But because of that, there's nothing that, that would show you. It's like, oh, this is the bad place. Or like, oh, this is the good place. Um, it's just these places are. Um, unbiased maybe is like as close as you can get a sort of unbiased reportage um, which feels like it should be um, I don't know like cold and clinical and there should be a lot of distance you know like non-emotionalness between um, between that reportage and your experience with that thing with that reportage but like both Calvino and the the director and the the animators and the people who worked on on Kino's journey uh, have found a way to present that information in an unbiased way, but in a way that is inviting and meditative and spacious enough for you to exist in these worlds and spend time in in them. And uh, when invited or when asked to form an, to have an opinion or to ask what you think about them or given enough time and space uh, to, to sit with and actually formulate what you think about them. Um, I, do, I don't know if this will be an experience that everyone has, but I feel like both Kino's Journey and Invisible Cities have a lot of uh, staying power. Um, like I've been thinking about Invisible Cities kind of, I mean, not actively, uh, since I read it, but it's, it's in me. It's like, it's kind of a part of my consciousness now, similar with Kino's journey. Like it's, it's, it's now sort of a touchstone that I have in me, um, that has just sort of, that's the place that it exists now, or that's, that's, this is the space that it occupies. And I, you know, I now think of things that sort of in relation to invisible cities or Kino's journey. Um, but I, I would like to acknowledge again that I didn't necessarily really talk a whole lot about uh, Invisible Cities as a whole. Um, but it feels like it's a book. I mean, there's not really a plot um, as opposed to uh, Jane a Murder or um, After the Quake. Or did I do The Martian Chronicles? Hmm. If not, that's another book that I should do. Anyway, there's not really a, a plot. It's it's more uh, elliptical and more sort of, um, I don't know, it's these like little image 
or word image meditations. Um, and because of that, like I said earlier, when I read the, the cities in memory one, um, it feels like it could be prose poetry. Um, or it, it like the book, or maybe I said this earlier than, than that, that the, the book for me feels like it could operate as if it's a bunch of interlinked prose poems. Um, because it's not a novel, and it's not really a short story collection. I mean, I guess you could consider it like a collection of flash, interconnected flash pieces. Um, but it like it functions as a whole. It's similar to... Um, I'm sorry, I'm so burpy. All of those pauses are me trying to stifle burps. <coughs> uh, a little... Uh, behind the mic information uh, but anyway similar to how the smallest unit of of bedful of nebraska's is the chapbook itself uh the smallest unit of invisible cities for me is the book itself like i can't pick i can't take one of those vignettes out of the book and separate it from the rest of the vignettes in that book um so in that way it's like i don't I can't, I, it's not, like, I don't read it as a short story collection or as a collection of, like, individual flash pieces or even individual prose, like, prose poem pieces. It feels like it's a manuscript. I don't know, maybe it's similar to uh, Autobiography of Red, which is what I'm, uh, I've been reading for the last week or so. Um, that it's, I mean, Autobiography of Red is a novel written in verse, um, and it feels maybe about the closest that um, that Invisible Cities gets to. It, it's it's a like a novella written in prose poems. Um, I don't know. But b because of that, it's, it's difficult really to kind of like say what it's about other than it's just Marco Polo and Kublai Khan maybe hanging out in a garden talking to each other or maybe just imagining that they're, <laughs> they're both in a garden talking to each other. Um, but it's, um, it's a really, really in, maybe not insightful, but really like deep thinking, deep feeling read. Um, it's something that you want to like, you can get through it pretty quick. Like each, each city is at most like a page, maybe like two pages long. Um, and it's only 160, maybe 170 pages. Um, so you can get through it really, really quick. But I feel like it, it sort of resists reading it too quickly because there's a, um, I don't know, there's a, there's a lot of information that is sort of presented to you without you really knowing that it's presented to you. So it takes a little bit for it to fully sink in and for you to fully catch up. They're like, oh, this is actually what I just read. Um, and that it just like it it lends itself to just sort of taking your time and sort of luxuriating in, in the the white spaces around the the small blocks of text um, as if you were luxuriating in the city itself individual cities in themselves um, but i i can't i hope that this review uh, entices people to read it um, because it is one of my like i said uh, right before I started uh, reviewing it, quote-unquote. Um, it is, I think, if it is if it is not already my favorite uh, prose book, 
Uh, it is very, very quickly becoming my favorite prose book. Um, I also, I, I apologize if this review uh, has turned people off or has made anybody listening not want to read it. Um, please still give it a shot. Um, I'm sorry if my sort of incoherent <laughs> rambling about my emotional experience with a book um, has soured you on it. Uh, that was not my intention. Speaking of intentions again. Uh, but as uh, Sandman, uh, I think Morpheus, I'm not sure what volume he says this, that uh, intentions and outcomes are rarely uh, coincidal. So, but I do hope that whoever is listening will go out and, and pick up a, a, a copy of this um, or find somebody to lend it to you because it, it's, I think more so than any any collection of or any any prose book that I have, with the exception of maybe um, Blue Pastures, which is an essay collection by Mary Oliver. Um, I feel like I could go back and reread Invisible Cities over and over and over and over again. Maybe maybe Bluets too. I could probably do that. Um, but I like. I kind of wish that I had. Well, I'm happy that I lent Jane my copy of it, but I wish that I had an auxiliary copy of it because I really want to read it again. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it's, it's one of the, it, in that regard, it, at least for me, it feels more, more like a, a my experience with poetry. Um, because a lot of, a lot of prose books that I have, it's like I read it and if there's a story and the, the, like, if it's plot driven, when I read it and I read the plot, I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't know if there's a, there's a whole lot of more that I can get out of this because it's, I know the story and I, I can internalize the story. But it's something like this, because it resists story or the, the elements of story that it has in the, in the frame device get real, uh, real out there real quick, or maybe real in there. I don't know what direction it's going, if it's out or in. Um, but, and because there's so much uh, space, like inherent space in the, in the book itself, and so much invitation to just sort of dwell and think about this stuff. Um, I could I could read this I think over and over and over again. Um, but <coughs> because I've been rambling for almost an hour and a half, um, I think I'm going to read um, the poem of mine that was inspired in no small part by um, by Invisible Cities, and then I will read the last little section of um, Invisible Cities as a, as a thing to end on, because I think, I mean, especially in the U.S., but I feel like kind of all over the place, um, shit's getting bad, or shit has been bad, and it is getting worse, or it has continued to be bad, or, you know, it's just, it sucks. There's a lot of things out in the world that suck right now. Um, and I think the the last paragraph um, of Invisible Cities is is good thing is a is a good thing to to remember and to hold on to uh, as shit is bad and continues to be bad, and will prop and probably will get worse um, before it gets better. Uh, but um, yeah, so this is. Uh, this is a sky as big as Texas. One, the mind refusing to accept the height, the distance, the speed at which one here is replaced with another plummets into sleep. 
in dreams of the city around which all other cities orbit is variation. And though you were born there, you cannot name it. Though you lived there for decades, you can only recall the road leading away, the gentle downward slope, the dust mixing the air into sunlight. It is your first memory. Do not worry. It is my first memory as well. Two. Do not worry. While you sleep, your body unclasps the seatbelt of gravity and seeks an oracle of the clouds. At such a vantage, they take your shadow, your questions, in one wisp of hand and say, yes, we will meet here and here and here. And the last thought for 2019 and the decade. The Khan said, it is all useless if the last landing place can only be the infernal city. And it is there that, in ever-narrowing circles, the current is drawing us. And Polo said, The inferno of the living is not something that will be. If there is one, it is what is already here, the inferno where we live every day, that we form by being together. There are two ways to escape suffering it. The first is easy for many. Accept the inferno and become such a part of it that you can no longer see it. The second is risky and demands constant vigilance and apprehension. Seek and learn to recognize who and what in the midst of the inferno are not inferno. Then make them endure. Give them space.